Greetings, friends, and welcome to another episode of Dharma Junkie. I am the Reverend Justin Otto, and today on Dharma Junkie, well, we're joined by Brother Byrne Clay. Now, my path first crossed with Brother Burns when we were both doing mission work in the dirt farms, sweatshops, and dive bars of Northwest Florida. We effectively converted no one, but over the years I did happen to learn quite a bit about Brother Byrne. I learned that he is a Buddhist, that he is a spiritual seeker, that he is a free thinker, a multi-instrumentalist, and one half of Megan Jean and the Clay Family Band. In this episode, we talk about how Brother Burns' Sonny Bono impression led him upon his spiritual path. We talk about how the devil is hiding around every corner. He's just waiting to harvest your tears like that of the tears of children. Like a butterfly drinking the nectar of a milkweed. And I don't know if you've ever seen a butterfly drink the nectar of the milkweed, but it's quite disgusting. Their proboscis is formidable and gross. We talk about meditation. We talk about your spiritual practice. Yes, you in particular. We talk about how things are uncertain in these trying times. We talk about jazz. We talk about exorcisms and the possibility of demonic possession. We even draw a Venn diagram to show just how likely that possibility is. It's shocking. That's Brother Byrne playing the organ back there. Thank you, Brother Byrne. And we talk about the destination in life and family. Because what are we all, if not family? One big family of Dharma junkies just living in the squat house of the universe and eating from the trash cans of our own hearts and minds. But we're going to continue on and move forward in the conversation. So ladies and gentlemen... Without further ado, Mr. Byrne Clay. You might catch yourself sliding in and out of you might catch yourself sliding in and out of all This is an experiment. This is an experiment in mind formation. Information. Information. Forming, forming, controlling, controlling, operating your, operating mind, your mind and your brain. Using digital, using techniques, digital techniques to overload, to overload scramble, scramble, confuse, confuse, unfocus mind, your mind. The natural state of the brain is chaos. Chaos, Chaos is beautiful. Hey, what's up, man? Hey there, how you doing? Keith? Doing good. How you been? I'm good. I'm real good. How you been doing? Come here, Weavers. Oh. So much water. Oh, man. So she doesn't get too goofy. <laughs> I'm good, man. Just, you know, business as usual. Back to business as usual. You know, we uh, just started back to work. Oh, yeah. Because they opened restaurants. Restaurants back up, right? How's how's that whole how's that whole world doing? Oh man, <laughs> terrible. I I know. Yeah, and I'm ready to be out of it already. Like, uh, you know, I've only been back in the restaurant business for like a year now. Yeah. I'm 
I'm over it, man. I feel you. You know, it's just not what I want to do. Right. I, I do understand. Yeah. You know, especially after following my, my passion, which for a long time was music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh, did that for you know, several years. That's how, that's how we first that's met good. was, uh, I think I filled in for a gig for you uh, here in Pensacola. I think I, I think Megan had gotten the flu mm-hmm. and you were sick and uh, they needed somebody to cover that gig and they called me. So. I, rem- I believe I remember that. That was a while ago. Yeah, I think Nick Flagstar actually called yeah, me. Yeah, that, that would. He's he's the guy. It was like 2012, probably. Uh, yeah, that does sound about right. It's about there. Yeah, yeah, we met Nick. We met Nick after we got married. So we probably met Nick around 12, 2011. So yeah, 2011, 2012. How long have you guys been married now? Megan and I have been married since 2010. So 10 years this year. That's awesome, yeah. man. Been working out. Excellent, excellent. It's always good to hear there's so many cases that don't, you know, so the, the divorce rate's so high, especially like in a touring atmosphere, because you guys tour pretty, I mean, you know, when you're not on lockdown, you guys tour pretty extensively. Well, yeah, prior to lockdown, we were on tour for pretty much 13 years straight, uh, doing, I think our, sh- our, our, our shortest year, I think we did like 100 performances, and, that was, awesome. and then our most, we did 220 one year, and that that's a busy year. A very busy year, yeah, for sure. It's like Scott H. Byram numbers. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, for real. Um, that guy's a madman. He's just always on the road. I think. I, I mean, that's what happens. I mean, some of us, we just. I mean, Megan and I, we got kind of caught in it all, and uh, we ended up uh, being on the road a lot longer than we were expecting to be. And uh, you know, right. the the whole coronavirus uh, thing has actually kind of softened a landing for us. It's given us sort of a an easy, uh, you know, what well, we've been kind of forced to with the rest of the world. So it's been, you right. know, when kind of forced to kind of find a find a, a different way to uh, start to deliver our art and our music. And uh, so it's actually been kind of a, a blessing for us in regards to that, because, you know, we, we, we have this organic audience of people that we met, you know, person to person over the course of 13 years. And right. I think about... I, definitely over 600,000 miles of driving that I've done personally and uh, playing all these shows and all these different situations and circumstances and, and developing personal relationships. So we have, we're very fortunate that, you know, because of that right now we have a fan base that has been following us and they're still following us and they still want to see us producing new stuff in this new environment. So, uh, have you guys been doing any of the kind of like live feed stuff? Yeah, we like have. We've been doing a whole bunch. Uh, our Patreon has become, you know, more of a thing than it than it was before, and that's been doing very well. And so we've done live stream performances, and uh, you know, they were definitely like you know when when everyone went into quarantine, there was a big trend of you know given to musicians doing the live stream thing. So we've done a few, few, you know, special performances and we've been experimenting with the live stream software and finding out what else we can do with it. Uh, we've been producing videos that we've been mostly That's delivering cool. to, you know, our, our Patreon people and working with animation is, what, and all what sorts is, of stuff. What, what is your Patreon? Just in case people. Oh, it's, uh, to look it's, it's Megan Jean. <laughs> M-E-G-A-N-J-E-A-N. Megan Jean, that's right that's that's my that's my wife, and she's sort of the focal point of the group. But uh, yeah, that's that's our project together. Right on. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about this because you and I have kind of, like I said, we've known each other for 
maybe eight years, but like over the past, say like year and a half or so, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if, you know, you probably know, like I've make no, no secret about it. Like I was a heroin addict for like six years sure. out of the past eight mm-hmm. and then uh, went to rehab and like, kind of like found myself spiritually. Yeah. And so, you know, you and I have just kind of back and forth, you know, talked for like the past year and a half or so since I've been on kind of on this spiritual journey of sorts. And like, you've been kind of a big source of like guidance for me at times. Wow. Like you've really helped me out. It's like when I've been like really fucked up in the head, like you have said some words to me that I'll like really kind of like put things into perspective. Well, makes, you know what I mean? Glad. <clears throat> so like, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, that aspect of it, like, especially with the whole coronavirus thing. It's like, have you ever done like a Vipassana retreat, like a 10 day silent retreat? Um, Cause it's, I, I've it's, never done like, one of those like formal, the, those formal retreats uh, like, like that on that level. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I've been, I've been sitting, I mean, I started meditating uh, regularly in 1995. Um, okay. And what happened to me back then was I, well, I went skiing for the first and last time and went into a tree and fractured my spine in three places. And, um, and what, ha- what happened was, uh, you know, they, they said, oh, you, you basically every, every adult, to me was like, well, you're fucked up for life now. And, uh, so, and that, and that did register with me. I'm like, okay, this is something I I have to, to deal with. And, um, they gave me, they gave me Tylenol with codeine, which Mm. was something that I had been given a couple years prior to that. I had a very bad case of swimmer's ear. Um, that was very painful. This was, this would have been 1992. It was, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was 1992. And uh, I remember uh, having like this ear infection that was so bad and it kept me up all night. My mom took me to the doctor and they said, here's some Tylenol coating. You take it. And I took the pill. And then I remember watching TV that night and the pain just disappeared. Mm. And I was like, wow, that's, that's incredible. Cause I had been in you know, such discomfort. I could still feel the pressure of the infection in my ear, but the pain was gone. So I, I went to sleep. I got a night's sleep and I felt great. And then the next night I said, okay, I'm going to take this pill again. And it's going to make me feel better. And I took the pill and it felt better, but it wasn't anything like what had happened the night before. And at 12 right. years old, I was like, oh, my body's developing a tolerance to this. That's pretty, pretty big for a 12 year old to notice. Well, that. yeah, yeah. Cause, cause I was, well, again, this is, this is, this is, this is my mom. <laughs> my mother is like, my mom is like, you, you got to really make a good case that you're in discomfort. <laughs> right. My mom is going to, my mom is going to be like, really? Does it really hurt? You know, it's, it's right. kind of like that. Oh yeah, so, for sure. And to her credit, you know, to her credit, she was, she was, she was right about a lot of things. So, so I was at the time I realized that my body was developing a tolerance to this stuff. So when I fractured my spine years later, I remembered that. And I was, and I was very concerned. I was like, I don't want, if I'm going to have to deal with this uh, for the rest of my life in some shape or form, like, I don't want to get into the habit of relying on anything that I can't produce myself to deal with it because this is my life. You know what I mean? Right. And again, I was, again, I was fortunate. Uh, My parents, they had a bookshelf in the house that was, that they just collected books and I think it was a Richard Hiddle uh, yoga book or something from the seventies that I started with. And uh, it went into, cause it was all about spine stuff. 
And I have an aunt who is, uh, she's a Buddhist nun now. She wasn't back then, but she really encouraged me to look into yoga to deal, to, to, okay. to do this. And so I started doing yoga, not, not all the, not all the poses that a lot of people do, but actual yoga practice while I was still in a back brace. And I was learning how to, you know, position my body so that my spine could be erect and more comfortable right. and all these things. And, and, uh, and I mean, it, it like gave me a methodology to deal with the pain. And uh, so I started to get interested in uh, meditation because they kind of talked about it in the book and they kind of went over things like Kundalini and all, all these sorts of things. But I was right. brand spanking new to all this. And um, Well, that's one of the big things about yoga. You know, it's like so many people think, you know, yoga is just, you know, stretching and sun salutations and you know no. it's 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 purely a form of meditation it is. it's i mean and, and all the stretches what those what they do is they're you're just preparing your body for a deeper meditation you know right. and when you practice it regularly over a long period of time it just starts to unfold you know and you start to experience you know what what it's really all about agreed um and it's and you know and that's why it becomes so popular and it's also how a lot of yoga people get that reputation for being like overly enthusiastic, trying to get people <laughs> to do things right. that they don't understand. Almost, almost militant in their recruiting tactics. <laughs> you know, well, it's got, here's a reverse. Here's a story. Like um, when I was, uh, I was touring with a band a long, long time ago and we played huh. in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This was a punk band I was playing with. And uh, we were doing this uh, performance and there was this metal band that was playing. And prior to the show, I noticed there were all these dudes walking around uh, the club and they had meat hooks pierced into their shoulders, into the skin. Oh, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. And I hadn't really, it was like, I'd seen all kinds of body modification and whatnot. And, you know, it's a new one. uh, But I hadn't seen that yet, you know? And, uh, and of course (laughs) me being me, I'm just kind of looking at them and I'm like, that has got to be really cumbersome. Like, why would you do that? (laughs) You're asking all these questions. And then anyway, then what happened was, then this metal band's playing, and these guys with the meat hooks—they're suspending themselves from the ceiling, and they got the skin uh, stretching up uh, over their heads. And they're, you know, right. at first, it, well, when when the set started, it was totally cool because they're all like pumped up and they're beating their chest and they're swinging right. from their skin, and it's really shocking yeah, it's like, to look at, especially. If you're, it's like the most metal thing. It ever. is the most metal thing ever, and so. For me, I'm just sitting there going like, oh, of course, that makes total sense. That's why you pierce a meat hook into your back. Good on you guys. So, you know, that reminds – and so anyway, so I, that, of course, that image stayed in my head for a long time. And then, really putting the show in show business. Yeah, it really does, you know. And then I, I met one of these people years and years later. Right. And I mentioned this story to him, you know, and he does the, the suspension thing. And he was oh. like, he was like, yeah, you know, yeah, when you get up there – at first, you're like, "Oh, my skin's gonna break," and then you get over your fear, and then you get, then you deal with the pain, and then I don't know, man. You just got to get there yourself. And I understand that as a meditator, but meditation is a much more gentle <laughs> way right. to way way to approach. Um, pretty much exactly uh, what he was saying. But at the same time, for me, it's about uh, being able to really sit with your own body and your own perception of your own body, and to start of slowly, you know, removing. Um, the kind of things that you self-identify as because when you, when you start to do that, you start to realize that uh, how many of these external factors in your life have been kind of pulling you along and taking the best of you. And as you slowly start to like loosen up 
that process, you can start to deal with the sort of issues that your life throws at you with a much more right. even even head, um, no matter what. And that's, that's oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. That's been mine. Um, when I started, you know, when I got into meditation, this was in New York, um, from White Plains, New York. There was a, a Zen group called the Empty Hand Zendo in Rye. And I started going over there a little bit and they gave me sort of my first little instructions into Zazen and kind of introducing me to Zen Buddhism and that right. whole world. And um, I mean, it, it, it made a big mark on me because uh, I, I found it all philosophically relatable. I found the practice, you know, easy to sustain in my own life. I didn't feel like I was being coerced into joining some sort of organization I wasn't interested in. I wasn't, right. I wasn't even, they, I didn't even know if they, they were barely even trying to get anyone to join them. You know, <laughs> they, it was, yeah, they don't, don't have the Jehovah's witness style recruiting policies. Yeah, they, they, they took, a, they took <laughs> a different route, you know, for that. And, and uh, so, <laughs> no, it was very, so I, you know, I had this spiritual base and it happened when I was, 15, 16 years old. And I think when I was 16, I sort of, something about it just kind of clicked. And, uh, you know, and I just actually just felt very good. I just suddenly had a very different view of life than I, than I used to have. And it was definitely more helpful. It was more constructive. Right. And, um, and I'm eternally grateful for that. It was just not something that I was necessarily like consciously seeking up to that point, right. but it's something that kind of all these, different circumstances in my life, you know, presented me with sort of a, like, here's how you can have, here's a spiritual base that you can find that you, that you can manage, so to speak. And, um, my, my parents are, my mother is, uh, she's, a, she's a practicing Catholic and my dad is a, just a lifelong atheist. And that's never been an issue in, in our family. Right. You know, they, they don't, they don't see it that way. You know, they're not, they don't politicize the religion in that way. And they certainly don't force their views on it. And so I was in an, an environment where it was, you know, okay. Well, you know, that, that that's so helpful. I mean, so many people, you know, especially like in the, uh, where are you from originally? I'm from New York originally. You're from, yeah. See, definitely I would say, and this is just through my own observations, my own empirical data that, it, you know, uh, in the North, you're going to run into people who are a lot more open like that in the, in the South, you pretty much have religion shoved down your throat yeah. from the time you're born until you're, you're dead. I mean, I'm from the Bible belt. So, yeah, you know, and it's, it's a very heavy Baptist Southern Baptist down here. I, I personally was not Southern Baptist, but right. No, but, but it's there. Baptist. I mean, my dad's from but a small it's, town it's, in it's Ohio very, where, and it's, it's, you know, here, it's one of those things that like, if you, if you're not going to church, you know, you're looked down upon almost in the South, you know, like, so it, it, to embrace any kind of like Eastern religions or philosophies mm -hmm. is, you know, it's much more widely accepted now. But when I was growing up, you know, in the eighties, when I was a kid, like, uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, you could say that, that, yeah, I mean, the religion's a lot more heavily politicized in the South, right. you know, and I mean, and it's politicized in, in, in the, in the North too. I mean, I think one of the, I, you know, as I've gotten older, you know, I, when I was younger, I had more of a hostility towards, you know, Christianity and the Abrahamic religions because for sure, you know, for a lot of the same, I mean, for a lot of the same reasons that a lot of people do, um, 
you know, and it's, and it's usually because you either had an adverse experience or there's something about it that bothers you. Like, you know, you read about Catholic priests molesting children and, and you don't like that. You know, you're not, right. it's not something you want to get behind. Or if you have people in your life who are like aggressively trying to like promote their worldview right. on you and, and, yeah, and there's always, yeah, and you want to push back and whatnot. Um, but you know, for me, maintaining a practice and I'll get more into that later, but like, you know, it actually kind of, after a while and it took a while, but after a while I started to see the common threads within my own practice and how, you know, that, that more, that, that those sort of politicized movements, um, how, where they, where they, where they are, where they intertwine. Right. You know, and I think where they, where they, where they intertwine is like, regardless of your own, spiritual path that you're on um everybody you know all of these different religions and, 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 and whatever all they are are vehicles for 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 self-reflection on the subtlest level possible right. and and it's it only really they're only really valid if um they're excessive they're accessible to a person you know like you can't, you can't, um, I mean, you can't make someone a Christian if they don't know who Jesus is. It just doesn't, it's just, right. you know, yeah, it's not gonna it work. doesn't work, you know, you can't, you can't be, you know, you have to have something that you can understand. You have something that you can grasp on and, you know, Western, our religious culture in the West, um, you know, we have religion has always, has been very heavily tied to government for a long time. Um, you know, the, the Protestant, the Protestant Reformation was, I mean, the Catholic Church was a government and they happened to be, you know, in charge of, they, they were in charge of Christianity. They were the only Christian church for a long time. In charge of the world at large, world, pretty world. much. And they point. still are one of the large, they, they still oh, are. They're, the largest. They are. And they're, um, they're the last remaining remnants of the Roman Empire. I mean, it's been around for a very long, the Catholic yeah. Church predates Christianity. I mean, for real, if you look along the, the timeline. And yeah, there were could governments. And, I'm sorry? Could you repeat that? Uh, you kind of broke up a little bit. Could you repeat okay, that? Okay, yeah. So, the, the, I mean, the Catholic Church is the last, it's the last remaining, um, in, it's the last remaining uh, living uh, aspect of the, the Roman Empire. Okay, the Catholic sure. Church is The Catholic Church is older than Christianity, if you, you want to get yeah, really absolutely. But so it had a had this very very broad and and very you know powerful position in the world, and then uh, during the Protestant Reformation, um, you know when you had a lot of merchants and whatnot who were getting wealthy, and then they they start to wonder, well, why are we giving all our money to 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 the Catholic Church, you know, right. and are they really the authorities on religion? And you know the Protestant Reformation did actually. Um, ask a lot of very legitimate questions. Uh, you know, the Catholic Church was engaging in practices like selling indulgences where, you know, you go in and say, well, I sinned, but here's, I'm going to pay off for this. And then you guys are going to make it clear. We've got those sorts of like, kind of like, you know, I mean, really like dishonest practices. And uh, you had Protestants like Martin Luther and John Calvin who were pointing these things out and going like, this shit's not in the Bible. Because not a lot of people right. don't realize this. Up until that point, a lot of people didn't even bother to read the Bible, including priests. Oh, yeah. Priests didn't even read the Bible very often because it wasn't seen as necessary. 
But the Catholic Church is a government, and you're trying to take power away from a government. So how do you do that? You do that by following the law. Well, the only book, and to follow the law, you need to have a, a, a rule book so that you can argue right. semantically using logic and reason. And the only book available yeah. was the Bible. So that's where that comes out. And it's still a big part of our culture today. The sort of oh, Protestant sure. debate, the sort of reading the text like they're legal documents and using legal style arguments is still very much a part of Western religious culture. And oh, yeah, I see that every day. Yeah, you see it every day. And then during the Protestant Reformation, there was this third group, the Anabaptists, who later became the Amish and the Mennonites. And these people said, wait a minute, infant baptism's not in the Bible either. You're just trying to take a census for the government, and we don't want government in our religion. So we're separating and we're going to the woods. And of course, the Protestants and the Catholics went off to kill them. And, you know, and it's, it's a big mess. And, you know. Right. In the modern world, I think a lot of people, especially people our, around our age and younger um, and old, a little bit older as well, you know, you kind of look at the, the history and we have a little more education about, you know, these different things that have happened. And we start to go like, well, where does the spiritual aspect really play into this? And it seems, you know, it doesn't seem it's, it's not accessible to a lot of people like it used to be. Right. And... Um, and I think that's just that's just uh, I think that's just an aspect of what the religion 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 is. It's just this constantly changing, ebbing and flowing with you know culture, time, language, and place, and how people the, the tools people use to kind of look inside themselves is, is going to change as they're exposed to new ways of doing it. You know, um, so you know. So again, like I said, you know, so I had that, you know, the political aspect of, of Christianity, especially the political aspect of Christianity as it exists in America, you know, turned me off a fair amount when I was younger. Um, but, you know, as I get older and then you start to talk to people who actually practice this religion, you know, without, you know, without making it a big, big aggressive deal. Right. You learn to talk to a person uh, about what the, 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 these ideas mean to them and how they filter it through in their experience and through their spiritual communities and the lexicon, the language of that community. You know, you start to right. you start to you start to see that it's like it, it is very, very, very similar. But, but of course, you know, everyone everyone's different. There's um, one of the most uh, one of the most famous Buddhist stories is uh, it's in it's in the lotus sutra it's chapter three of the lotus sutra okay. the parable of the burning house and if you read a lot of uh especially eastern buddhist texts like from china and japan but um they'll mention the burning house a lot the burning house is a metaphor for the world it's just a house on fire and it's actually a pretty it's 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 kind of fun to read because it's just a very long description of a house on fire and every and as you keep going, it just keeps getting progressively worse. They're like, and the beams are right, and the floor is dirty, and there's feces. By the way, and there's wild animals running around, and they're killing things, and there's demons, and they're in pain, and it just keeps, you know, compounding, compounding, better. progressively, progressively worse. worse for just pages in Sanskrit. You know, 
And then, um, then it gets to this point where, you know, the, the story is there's this wealthy man who owns the house and it's on fire and he's looking at it and his kids are inside and they're just playing with their toys and they're, they're kids. They're dumb. They don't know anything. You know? Right. So he goes, Hey kids, it's dangerous in there. Get out of the house. And they're like, now nah, we're fine. We're fine. <laughs> don't worry about us. And he's like, Oh man, what am I going to do? I gotta, I gotta fix this. So, so he, um, so he goes, okay, hey kids, <laughs> I got three, three different carts. They're pulled by three different animals for you to play with. We got one, I can't remember the animals. There's like one's a goat and one's an ox or whatever, you know, three different carts. Right. Whatever you're into, you, you get it. And the kids are like, oh right, right. yeah. <laughs> so the kids come running out of the house because they're like, they, they're, they want to play with their toys, you know, and they, they've been. Right. And then he gets there, he's like, all right, all right, all right. Well, I don't actually have those carts, but I have this cart that's way better and you wouldn't understand unless you got it. And they're all like, you're totally right. And they get in the big majestic cart and they, they ride off. And right. the meaning of this, this story and what it means is, and there's a bunch of other variations of this parable in the Lotus Sutra as well, but it, it's illustrating a concept in Sanskrit that's called upaya. And that means uh, skillful means. So what it means is, you know, you're a person and I'm a person. And, um, right. and actually, as, as English-speaking Americans, this is a good, really good example. Like, you and I, like, how old are you? I'm 30. Okay, so I'm 40. So we're about the same age. So, so you and I, were from different parts of the, the country. And we both speak English. But, you know, because... English is such a highly customizable language and we can really insert our personality and experience into it. You know, we speak it oh, just definitely. a little tiny bit different. You know, For sure. You have your version of it. I have my version of it. But we can talk to each other and we can understand it. Absolutely. And so upaya is you take all that customization that a person does to like piece their version of reality and you cater to it so that you can deliver um, a meaningful message. Okay. Is that, you know, so I had a friend, I have a friend, his name is uh, Cooper Moore. He was one of my, my early musical mentors. And he was, uh, he actually, he had a gig for a while. He was a resident storyteller at Prospect Park in Brooklyn. And I said to him, I said, how do you, you know, what's the secret to like telling a story? And he said, know your audience and only use words they understand. Absolutely. And that is the most, that's really profound advice because it applies. I mean, you can use it in, in all kinds of situations. Oh, for sure. It, it, I was actually a, a journalist for a while. I worked for the local newspaper here, and that was like one of the first things when you're when you're learning to write AP style. It's like, you know, cater to your audience and don't use any big words. Yeah. You want this to read uh, read on like a like a fourth grade level. Yeah. Like you want, you want literally everyone to be able to understand. And, and it's funny because like when, when you start with intuitively, when you hear that, you're thinking, Oh, I got to dumb it down. Well, yeah. I got to dumb it. Exactly. That, kind of that, was my, that was my first thought when That's I heard that. That's the first thought we all have. It you know, it's like, well, I got to dumb it down. But then after a while you realize like, no, it, what it really means is I got to know what I'm talking about. Right. Because I need, yeah. I, without using any flowery words or without subtext, I need to be able to put this in terms that people, people can understand. Like, oh, I'm such an eloquent speaker. I'm such an eloquent exactly. writer. Look at this really cool it, word that you know, you run into that a lot with uh, academia, especially like people that use you know grandiose 
you know, language that is totally unapplicable to the situation. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if you, you run into P, like PhD candidates who just can't stop themselves from using the, the most complicated, you know, grammatical syntax that they can. And it's like, nobody knows, none of these people know what you're talking about because you're, you're talking above their heads. Like if you want to reach people, you do have to speak from that level where everyone can understand it really. No, you have to. And that's, it's imperative. And that's it is, it is imperative. And especially when you're talking about uh, spiritual ideas, because if spirituality is not for everybody, it's really not worth anything. Right. It has like, that's, regardless of what your spiritual true. path is, if you're following a spiritual path, that is not accessible to one hundred percent of beings on the planet. You're not really following anything with any credibility. I, I completely agree opinion, with that. Because, yeah, I mean, well, otherwise, well, what's, what's the point? The point? It, what's the point of propagating it? It's like, you exactly. know, it's like, well, we got this thing. It's going to work out really well for some people, but not you. But not everybody. Not everybody. So if it's not, not me, then why would I even give it the time of day? I'm like, well, it doesn't apply to me. Right. I'm not gonna, it's not going to get my attention. But, you know, if, if we're serious about looking at ourselves from a spiritual perspective, beyond the trappings of you know, our temporal mind, body, and lifespan. Right. You know, we have to be able to find ways to examine these ideas in a way that is truly accessible to the widest audience possible. So, right. you know, that's where I start to, you know, when you look at stuff like, uh, you know, uh, like the kind of mythological language that's used in all religions around the world. I mean, you right. know, Buddhist literature, Hindu literature has as much stuff that's fantastical and hard to believe. In fact, it probably has more than even the Christian oh, yeah. uh, and, and, and Jewish and, and Muslim literature. For sure. Because, you know, there's a lot of things that are like the, 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 the mythical language is it's very fantastical. But then when you start to really think about like, well, what is the, the actual scope of the ideas that we're investigating here are beyond the means of, of, of of any uh, linguistic uh, tools that we have. You can't, you know, how do you explain, how do you describe everything that is, was, and ever will be with a, with, with a light, with, 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 from the standpoint of a human mind, body, and lifespan, you can't do it. How do you make it's that, not there. how do you make that cohesive? It's not cohesive. So you have to, you have to, you have to create, sir, um, you have to create a, a, an object you can at least direct your, this is that, you know, directs your attention there. Right. A focal, focal point, point. The, the Jesus or the, yeah, whatever. You know, yeah. You have to create, you have to have an object. And this is, this is the sort of idea behind all devotional practices. Um, universally. I came into the, the idea of devotion. I came into actually probably within the past, like how long ago? It was a couple years ago, at least six, seven years ago. I was, um, I had been, I'd been getting more serious about like meditating regularly in my thirties, you know, and, uh, and it was going really well. And then uh, I was working with a band from Kyoto, Japan called Pirates Canoe and, uh, the mandolin player, she worked for her parents, uh, Buddhist temple in, in, in Kyoto. Now Buddhist temples in Japan, they're essentially the funeral business, you know? Okay. So, you know, when you die, you, you, you bring the, the, the body to a Buddhist temple and they, they deal with it. Um, and in Japan, a lot of these temples are like passed down generationally, you know, and 
So how interested the people who are occupying the temples are in Buddhism, you know, varies. Right. Uh, that's yeah. just to give a little bit of context. And, right. It's like a like the the kid that inherits his dad's plumbing business. He's like, yeah, I've got it, but I don't. I'm, I'm not a plumber. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. I, yeah. Exactly. It's a lot. There's a lot of it. Maybe my maybe my son will be. Maybe alone. my son will be more <laughs> into plumbing, but right now I'll just do you know sit behind a desk and. Right. other people do it you know that kind of stuff and so yeah but i was curious about what she was in and she said uh, uh it's i it's it's she didn't really speak much english so she actually had to look it up on her phone <laughs> mm. <laughs> to tell me what kind of buddhist temple her family had and it was all, I, lo- I, I love that we can do that now i just gotta say it, like, yeah i know right it's amazing i love that it, it is it's a, just the the sheer amount of communication that technology has opened up like that would have been impossible 20 years. Oh, ago. I know. You I know. know. Just that, that convenience of like, Oh, here, this is what I'm talking this about. Is what I'm yeah. talking about. No, it, it, it helps. And so anyway, she showed me, it was called Jodo Shinshu. And so I'm, I'm just a curious person. And I was like, well, I'm trying to like expand my understanding of Buddhist sex, and right. how all that works, you know? And so mm-hmm. I got, uh, I started to look at, I, I looked into it and I, I, you know, I found a, I found with a lot of these, a lot of, a lot of these ideas, like, you know, especially with the internet, you know, if you have a question uh, about any of this stuff, like it's not that hard to find a knowledgeable person who's more than happy to tell you if you just ask them. Oh, for sure. And so I ended up contacting, you know, I just, it just, that particular thing, it, I don't know what it was about that, but I ended up just having a lot of questions and I met some people who were involved in it. And Laura, I mean, I'll just kind of summarize. I don't want to get too into what it is, but like, so when Buddhism came to Japan uh, around the 1200s, 1100s, 1200s, it started out as it was it was coming in from China, and it 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 had already been around for like well over a thousand years. So, but Japan was receiving it relatively late in the game, and um, you had uh, you also have a you know you have and you have. In Japan, you had this large population of illiterate people, and so making you know the sort of abstract, philosophical, highly logical uh, sorts of teachings that Buddhism is known for is not exactly accessible to everyone all the time in that way. Right. You know, it's kind of hard. You know, that, and so what. And what what ended up happening is Buddhism's ad- adopted a practice that's very similar to uh, Hindu practice called bhakti, which is uh, promoted in the in the Bhagavad Gita. It basically means devotion or entrusting. Right. And in 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 uh, in, in in the in the Shin in the Shin world, they took a, a practice that comes from the Mahayana view. Uh, where they have a, there's a story about a Buddha named Amitabha, which means immeasurable light, who created a, a realm for beings that want to achieve enlightenment and want to be rid of suffering forever, but just can't for whatever reason. And all you have to do is entrust. And it sounds a lot like Christianity. And I was like, what? Let's say, isn't that most of us, aren't we all just kind of seeking enlightenment? And You want to find something you can entrust in and just know. Well, we just can't. From <laughs> you want to know what you can entrust in. And, and right. again, you, you, but you, to, to be able to entrust in something beyond the scope of 
your ability to comprehend it presents yeah, your, your own understanding. Your own understanding. Yeah, so in, in the Buddhist world, there's this Amitabha uh, story. In, in, it's the oh. sutra is called the Larger Sutra. It's actually a very cool sutra telling the story of you know, the, the, the Bodhisattva Dharmakara who wanted to create a realm to help everybody out. And, you know, all you have to do is entrust in him. But, and so, it, and, and so if you can explain, so the idea is you can explain this to an illiterate person and they can entrust in it free from doubt. Okay. Right. So now I'm going to use a, a Christian story to kind of illustrate this in another way. Okay. So right. like, in, this is you know, my favorite Bible story is uh, Luke four, which is when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the desert. It's give me you just gave me a really good idea. Not to interrupt, but uh, have you ever heard of the podcast My Favorite Murder? We should, we should start one called My Favorite Bible Story, and we'll just go in <laughs> different parts of the Bible and expound on them for every episode. Yeah. Just take one little snippet of like like ten words, and then just make an entire episode. <laughs> yeah. This, yeah, we continue. I can do that. Yeah. So anyway, um, so anyway, Luke four is Satan and Jesus in the desert. I mean, like you know, I was, I was, my mother. I had to go to Catholic you know, Sunday school for my mom when I was a kid. So you know, the, Satan has been a long fascination with me. Oh, for it was sure. In, like 19- he's lurking around every corner. Oh man. yeah, no, because this is the thing. Because like my mom, like, like for my mom, Christianity is just like a friendly, nice little mystical thing that she's got in her life she likes she's got her saint she likes uh her whole family everyone's got their own little variation on it and no it's not a big deal but like uh so I, it was always like a friendly thing and then around like 1988 89 when i was like eight or nine years old the show 2020 they broadcast a catholic exorcism on tv now i didn't see right. the show but like a whole bunch of kids from my sunday school class did and so that sunday right. the hands were all up like you know what's, what's oh yeah i'm sure what, yeah they had questions and for sure did, How he, could you not? teacher's like oh i don't want to <laughs> i want to deal with uh here we go i don't want to deal with this because like keep in right. mind like i mean i didn't this is this wasn't a hellfire crowd really it was just kind of like eh, we're catholic we got a pre you know it was very it was mellow actually the name right, of the right. church this is funny the name of the church was our lady of sorrows that's a that's amazing it, on so many levels. That didn't like occur to me until I was an adult. I was like, that's kind of messed up. That was the church we went. It's, ter- it's ominous and terrifying, really. But like, it wasn't a boring place. But like, it wasn't like Catholic Catholic masses are dull. They're not interesting. But like, no, not you know, unless you're like way into robes and incense. But yeah, whatever. But uh, <laughs> but it wasn't. But again, like, this wasn't a hellfire crowd. So the whole idea. Uh, the idea of like the devil like possessing a human body and like you know guiding their life like that I never even considered that in my life. This right. was the first time that had even like the threat of the devil even like came into came into my consciousness. This threat has become very real. Yeah. And so all of a sudden I was like I was like wait a minute that can happen. Holy, Holy shit. shit! This is not oh, good. No. This is not good, and I don't want it to happen to me. So, yeah, how do I prevent this? I was like, no, no, I was serious. So I got in, and my mom came and picked me up, and I got in, and I was like, okay. <laughs> so, question, question time. Time. <laughs> I can't remember. It was like, are exorcisms real? And my mother, like, <sighs> so what she says is, she goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> so in the 70s, 
there was this movie called The Exorcist, which was about a little girl who got oh, possessed by the devil. Oh, shit. And it's based was- on a real priest, and your grandfather is friends with him. Oh, shit. That's amazing. It is amazing. And it became very real for me at that moment. Oh, fuck yeah. I'm like, How could it not? Wait a minute. <laughs> like it went from like the devil is now a very real threat to holy shit. He's around the corner. He's around the corner. And it's like, you know. And so, of course, then the next moment is like, uh, I was like, okay, so what do I do <laughs> to make sure crazy. this doesn't happen to me? What do I got to do? I don't want that. I don't want to be that little girl. Because it was bad. Like, I hadn't even, I didn't even see the exorcism video. I hadn't even seen any of that. I hadn't even seen the movie The Exorcist. I hadn't seen. Right. This is, this is just an idea this for is you just at this an point. Idea. This is... And you know what? Listen, I was like <laughs> eight, nine years old, some stuff like that. Like, my oh, mind man. was just like, woo. And I, for sure. And I was, I was really like rattled by all of this. And so I'm like, well, what do I do? You know? And she, she gave me a very typical answer for her, which was, oh, it won't happen to you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and I was like, that is not acceptable. That's not, not very comforting. going to work. Um, and I will give it actually credit. The White Plains Library in White Plains, New York, had a book in the children's section called Devils and Demons, which was about the history of devils and demons as it exists in popular mythology. And they went into exorcisms and about, I mean, they even went into like, people getting stoned to death erroneously because they people believe they could like beat the devil out of, of people like that. So then I felt I still believe it that. made me feel a lot better uh, in general. I was like, Oh, you know, it's kind of a fringy kind of thing. It made me feel a lot better. Um, but it's also, but then I, so that was my introduction to Satan. And you know, it like, <laughs> that was the first time I heard it's about a, it, but it was not a good introduction because I think you know as I've come. To, this is just my opinion, now, but I'm like Satan is. It sounds like it sounds like a Lubin Brothers song. <laughs> <laughs> Satan is such an amazing character in Christian in the Christian in the Jew all of it. There's a whole Abrahamic world. Satan is one of them. He because what Satan mean the word Satan is Hebrew for adversary, and. It's, but it's not adversary like, you know, like Hitler v. England or, you know, anything like that. It's, it's, right. it's not, it's adversary like two lawyers are adversaries in court. Because okay. neither one of them is necessarily proving that they're correct. That's not really what they do. What they really try to do is they really try to cast doubt about the other person's position. So right, they're more more, more skeptics and like cynics yeah, than anything. That's else. exactly what it is. So what Satan, his role in the Bible, and this is consistent um, every time he's called Satan, is he doesn't. He's not just going out and doing evil for the sake of evil. He's going out and he's casting doubt about someone's entrusting in the world beyond what's right in front of them in favor of the world that is right in front of them. So in the book of Job, which is kind of a weird story, you know, as it is. Oh man, it's like one of the weirdest stories in the Bible. And it's one of the, yeah, it is. But when you start to think of it within this context, it makes a little more sense because it starts sure. out where Satan actually asks God's permission 
Right. It, it, it's, it's not malicious. It's, it's just intended to, like you said, just cast that doubt that there is. Well, because Satan casts doubt. He begins by casting that's what, yeah. doubt. He says that, that that's his entire that's purpose. His entire purpose. He goes, well, yeah, Job loves you. You're so good to him. So why wouldn't he, you know, and God's like, right. all right, Re- remove that goodness. Remove and, that goodness. And, see, and where is he, you know, is he still have, still doubt. He still yeah. see beyond that. And so God's like, try it out, you know, see how it goes. And yeah, he does, and he tortures the shit out of the guy, you know. Absolutely. And it doesn't sound like a nice story because none of us want to be tortured to death. No. And you know, it does seem kind of weird, especially within the you know our modern perspective. But the idea is the same, and I think the idea was explored a little better by Jesus in this Luke four story, because Jesus they say he tempts Jesus. And he's, but he's not asking Jesus to do anything that we would call conventionally evil. He's not at, he doesn't ask Jesus to hurt anybody. Right. He doesn't, the first thing he says, can you turn this stone to bread? And, you know, like my wife is, she's very into bread making and bread making is a really interesting process because it's this combination of, you know, human effort. Like we have to actually do the work to make the bread. It doesn't just right. appear. You know, it's not like uh, it's not like a lot of other plants that just grow out of the ground. You can eat it. Bread, right, right. you know, you can take the flour and the flour is not nutritious. You can't live off of flour. But if you put in water no. and then you can catch the wild yeast and you can grow the starter and all that stuff. If you can do that, and then with this natural process, you can make bread and you can actually live off of so Jesus, uh, so so when Satan says turn this stone into bread, he's saying, he's saying, can you can your effort can your efforts and desire overcome the circumstances that this is stone and this is inedible? And so he's really testing Jesus's ego. He's saying, can you do this? And Jesus says he doesn't. Jesus doesn't say I can't do that. He says right. it said that man won't live on bread alone, but by every word of God. And what that means, in my opinion. And I've talked to a lot of like ministers and everything, and they, they seem to agree with me, at least in, in the general, in, 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 my, in my basic analysis. Okay. You know, I'm not, I'm not a Christian, and I'm not like promoting any particular path for anybody. Right. But, um, but the, the idea is, you know, if, if, if your harvest fails because the weather's bad that year, you don't get bread. doesn't matter how much you put right. into it. It's like if, you know, right now we're dealing with this global pandemic and we're watching like world leaders just having to submit to something that's more powerful than them. Right. Yeah. Where everyone is. Absolutely. We can't. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, when, when, when we're faced with these obstacles, you know, there's definitely inside of us, it's a survival instinct that we want to overcome this. We want to, you know, we want to plow through, but you know, you know, when, when we, when we decide, we, you know, but are we, are, are we thinking like rationally or are we just being, you know, bullheaded? Are we, that's a little harder for us to discern, you know, at the moment. Right. and that's where, you know, these sorts of spiritual ideas can be very helpful because they remind Absolutely. us about our real place and all, no. you know, uh, and, and so, you know, and then the next uh, temptation Satan gives Jesus, he says, you know, it's like, fall off of this ledge and the angels were rescued. And I mean, it's like nature takes care of life feeds life. I mean, there's life all around us. 
Um, right. You know, if something dies, it gets eaten up by the earth and there's more. Yeah. It's always propagating. Yeah. I mean, life continues no matter what happens. Yeah, yeah. No matter what bad stuff happens to you or me, it's like life is going to continue without us. That's, you know, that's what it says. The angel. It's always been, it always, always will. will. And like, if you, you know, have faith in life and you're like, you know, you can find, you, you know, that's where your attention is. You know, yes, the angels will rescue you, so to speak, you know? And then right. Jesus says, don't, don't test, don't test God like that. Don't test the reality beyond what you understand based on your own self-centered point of view. Yeah. I feel you like know? it. Yeah, exactly. it's like you know you can't because if you do that, um, actually, and this is in in Shin Buddhism, they call that uh, the, the the calculative mind. Like our mind is always, it's always it's very calculative. It's trying to assess right. the the environment around us. It's trying to make sense of it. Um, and that's its job, like biologically. So um, you know, like one thing that I've learned in, from yoga is you know, you know, there's our intellect. And our intellect is very important, but our our intellect is not always uh, is not the all of our brain. It's not. It's right. Not, Absolutely. You know, we have we also have a nervous system in our body that's constantly uh, sending signals to the brain uh, to make sense of the environment around us. For I mean, for the purposes of survival. It's, right. it's a very real thing. So, um, you know, and, and as we go through life, our nervous system will start to tune itself to when it's perceiving danger, when it's perceiving some sort of threat. And, you know, it's like, so people who've been through very traumatic things, their bodies will start to uh, start to perceive, uh, you know, danger uh, where it may at one time have been applicable, but it's not applicable all the time. Right. Okay. So, you know, it's like if you grew up in an abusive environment where you were afraid you were going to get punched all the time, you know, later in life, you may be in a situation where no one has any desire to hurt you, but you still get the same feeling. Right. And when your mind sends those signals to the brain, the intellect is then tasked with the job of making sense of why you're having these feelings. And if you're caught off guard, your, your brain is just going to scramble to assemble a story that just makes sense at the moment. Right. For sure. And, and that's why you'll have people who will have like panic attacks. Well, they'll say or do things that are very, very irrational. And they may even like later when they calm down, they're like, I don't understand why I, I, I said that. I don't understand why right. I was thinking that. I don't, I, I don't, they don't get it. And it's very, very right. confusing. And, and for a lot of people that, and then it just kind of compounds on the stress that they're already feeling. For sure. But what, it, what really happened, what really is happening, and I've seen, I mean, I've seen this happen within myself. I've seen this happen with other people. What really happening is, no, you're just, your body's remembering a different time where it was. Right. And it's just trying to protect you. It's not, your body's not actually trying to harm you. Your body's trying to protect you, but you're 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 caught off guard and, and you don't have a mechanism to deal with this in a, in, in necessarily a healthy way. So yeah. and and then also you know when 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 you when people who are in those positions also your nervous system is just flooding your neural pathways with information, so you can't take in new information. 
I, th- I think that's most people, man. I think most people really lack the uh, the ability to to calm that, you know, to really center themselves and you know know that what's going on around them isn't necessarily the rea- the rea- actual reality of the situation. Their thoughts aren't their reality. You mm-hmm. know, that's the big thing is people. You know, people build these big stories in their head and they create these scenarios. You know, one of the ones I see a lot, and especially in the news, is you know, uh, make sure to keep your children locked up. There's people trying to steal your kids, which is, you know, I'm not saying that's not the case. People have always preyed on children, but like, you know, they get they they because of the, everything the media feeds them, and you know, having it just shoved down their throat so much because you know, especially with with the internet and information being global now. Mm-hmm. You know, we get this onslaught of information, this onslaught of stimuli that the human mind isn't ready to handle all of that input. No, it's not. I mean, they say the human mind isn't able to handle the amount of input we get when we go to the grocery store. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, you know, amplify that times a million. (laughs) And then, you know, you take the fear of someone stealing your child and inject that into it. And you're constantly, you know, there's people that create these scenarios in their head that they're, you know, someone's someone's going to steal my kid. Like, you know, that's, um, that's an, a possibility. I mean, a fucking meteor could come out of the sky and crush your head right now. Like that's a possibility too, sure. but you or know, global pandemic. Could just upset or, yeah. Hey, a fucking, somebody could eat a bat in China and I could be out of work for a month and a half <laughs> <laughs> or however it's are. But yeah. So yeah, that's interesting, man. But I, I think that's most people. I think most people. Well, well yeah, we, I mean, it's, 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 and it's, I don't think it's like an, it's because they have the, I, for sure that it's not because they have the inability to do so. It's because they don't know they have the ability to. Well, they don't have a method. They don't have a method. Exactly. And that's where exactly. I like, you know, developed a practice. And, that, and I think that is part of, like, I think that, you know, things like meditating and prayer, I think that's the point of those sorts of practices. You're trying to get in touch with, with with that aspect right. where you're where you're able to detach yourself from your whatever right. your circumstance is you right. yeah you said you got you got into meditating after your your skiing injury. yeah right. yeah i uh see when i really first started getting into meditating i was like 13 i uh i got diagnosed with uh, acute myelogenous leukemia when i was 13 Whoa. and went from like just being sick for a couple of weeks. Like I, I was going to school and like, I get nauseous and shit and like have to go to the nurse every day. And I was throwing up and I wake up like with nosebleeds and like eventually like I'd, you know, I'd be, go to my mom and I'd be like, look, I can't go to school today. And she thought I was faking for the first couple of weeks. And then like, it just kept progressively getting worse and worse. And I lost like maybe like 40 pounds over the course of like three weeks. Mm-hmm. Like it, I mean, it hit, it came on out of like, like pretty quickly. Yeah. And then, uh, went to the doctor one day and then the same day went from the, uh, my, my general practitioner to a specialist, to an oncologist, went from the oncologist straight to the hospital and then went from the hospital and flew to Gainesville and in and out of the hospital for, you know, anyway, fight cancer, you know, blah, blah, blah. Then, but that's where I got into meditation was, you know, cause like you were just saying, you, you want something to take you out of the situation to remove you from the situation. And the only way I could do that, was by going inside, you yeah. know what I mean? And I didn't realize that they would become in like, they would play such a big part of my life and be so handy because, you know, um, when I was in the hospital, uh, at, you know, when I was 13, I was on a morphine drip with Demerol injections and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, didn't even realize it at the time, but it kind of made me predisposed to opiate abuse later in my mm-hmm. life, you know? 
and then uh ended up going to jail in like 2014 Mm -hmm. yeah uh a long story there uh i was charged i i knew this guy that was uh bringing heroin in from texas Uh and uh he got arrested for trafficking and just because i knew him i got charged with conspiracy to traffic heroin i was looking at like 25 years minimum mandatory so i'm sitting in jail looking at 25 years minimum mandatory for something i I really had had nothing to do with i was just a user i was getting it from you know my my dope from him i was a junkie i wasn't you know i wasn't trafficking if i if i was trafficking drugs i probably could have been able to afford my bond (laughs) (laughs) that's not funny but But i could (laughs) but i couldn't so anyway i'm I'm at this uh, i'm at this work camp right and uh I'm just going through the bookshelf and I find this little pamphlet from uh, for this book called uh, Free on the Inside. Mm-hmm. It was written by a guy. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. His uh, name was uh, Bo Lozov. Not familiar with him. But he was he was a follower of uh, Ram Dass okay. and uh, Neem Karoli Baba gotcha. was his guru. So I kind of like kind of started expanding on that kind of idea, you know, the the Buddhism idea and just the the whole practice of it. And, you know, while I was in jail, because it was one of the, another, yet again, another one of those situations where I needed to remove myself from it. And the only way I could do that, just like the title of the book, is to be free on the inside. Yeah. You know, they might, I might be here for now doing this. I might be doing this for the next 25 fucking years. I don't know at this point. Right, yeah. So I had to, you know, and I was like, it kind of brought me back to that because I had, I had always meditated, not, but not serious. Like I, I, I didn't have any training in, you sure. know what I mean? I did what I thought was meditation at the right. time. And, but that the year that I did in jail at the time, like really, really helped me refine it a little bit. And then, yeah, yeah I got out and uh, I got out of jail in like 2015 and continued on my path of just utter fucking stupid devastation for another, you know, four years, mm-hmm. three years. And so I decided to, Hey, this isn't going to work for me anymore. And I uh, ended up going to this holistic rehab. Right. And that's where I really, really started tapping into that, the spiritual practices. You yeah. Know? But, man, wonderful. No, and that's, but, I mean, honestly, it's like, I mean, a lot of it. I mean, for me, I got more serious when I came to a point in my life where I kind of was looking down the line and I'm like, things could go really bad. Yeah, you know, they could. I didn't, I didn't know if they were, but I knew right. that they could. And, uh, oh, yeah. you know, without getting into the whole, my own personal drama that I was going through at the time, you know, I kind of was like, I gotta get, I gotta get back into, I got, I need a method. I need a tool, right. you know? So again, I started, I started back with the, with the, with the Zen Buddhist, like I, like I had. And, and yeah, no, it, 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 you need, you need that sort. I mean, you need to have some sort of adversity to overcome. If you don't get sick, you don't look for a cure. Absolutely. So what, like, what kind of practices are you utilizing these days to really kind of help keep you kind of focused and oh, sorry, you were kind of shut up for a second. Could you repeat that? Yeah. I was saying, uh, what kind of, what practices are, are you like, what are your main practices these days? Like you, you've kind of, I'm, at this point, you know, you're 40, you've been doing this since you were what, probably 12, 13, 15, yeah. somewhere 15. Yeah. So, you know, 25 years, you've been kind of on this spiritual path. Yeah. You'd had to have, you know, selectively, you know, kind of jeet kundoed it down to what you can use and what you can't use, what works for you, what doesn't. Right. What what works for you as far as like your spiritual path? What what are your what are your practices? What do you what are you doing these days? I know you do some breath techniques and I morning. have so yeah, I do a lot of different things. Um, but I'll say it starts with well, this one I have even though it's be I'd say my main 
my main practice, if I had to, is, is just, is a devotional practice. Um, and it's basic. When I got interested in, in Shin Buddhism, I met a guy named Paul Roberts and he taught me, uh, his method. And, uh, he, he would dis he, because this is not what, because I, Feel that this can be applied outside of the confines of Shin Buddhism, although it works perfectly wonderfully in there. Uh, he would say that I'm not I'm not technically following his instructions, but I do think he but but I do think he tapped into this and he called it uh, deep listening, which is where periodically you put aside all your biases and your pride and your certainty and you just put it to the side. You know that you're going to get it back. You're not losing anything. And you just sit right. and listen. So that's, that's, that's my practice when it all comes down to it. Right. Um, within, it, within the context of Shin Buddhism, you'd be listening to it uh, within the context of the story of the Amitabha and all these sorts of things. Within the context of Christianity, you'd be doing it with using Jesus as your object of devotion right. or whatever. The, uh, the Bhagavad Gita calls it bhakti yoga, and Krishna is right. the the object. It, it it varies. So that's so mine is a, a devotional practice, and I won't get into my own personal object because 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 again, I'm not trying to promote yeah, that, any that, one thing that, for anybody. That, that's, that's that's for you, it's man. For me, <laughs> and you know. You go, you, 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 you guys go find that information. <laughs> you know, that's, you know, that's a different thing because, because, because when I do talk about spiritual stuff, like I really do want to be able to be helpful to other people. And I, I mean, isn't that the point? It is the, yeah, it is the point. You know, um, I want to be helpful to other people. And so I always think again, what Cooper Moore told me, know your audience and use words they understand. Cause I want to talk because, you know, most people cannot talk about spirituality and religion with each other. It's like a real problem. Yeah, people like-minded can talk about it, and and that's wonderful. I mean, that's the point. Right. If you have a common lexicon, you know, I mean, you and I have some right. common like, understandings yeah, can, that make it easier yeah, for us to can, talk about some of these absolutely. things on a deeper level. I'm for like, sure. no. yeah, we can sit and have these conversations. Well, you know. You you can't just walk up to somebody on the street corner and start talking to them about, you know, the Bhagavad Gita. No, you can't. <laughs> they have to have a reference for it, you know? And that's one of the things is, you know, when I got, you know, I was, I was doing a, doing a very hard Buddhist practice. And then I realized that I had a very big blind spot in my own understanding of spirituality from a, a, a deistic perspective, you know, a God, you know, understanding God. So I was like, well, I have to understand this perspective too, you know? Right. And for me, the Bhagavad Gita was an amazing introduction to that. I still, I mean, I, right. I, I have a copy of it with me all the time. It's oh, yeah. that particular book, I, I would say, is, is probably my, my favorite, like, spiritual writing of all time. Because it's so concise and it kind of analyzes religion as a human phenomenon completely. And, um, uh, okay, I'm, where, so... So, you know, so looking into that and then finding a common language to understand these ideas so that I can talk with like a Bible thumping evangelical and maybe not agree with them on everything, but be able to get into them where I can have a, have a conversation where we can actually in some shape or form, whatever it may be, actually challenge each other. Right. Not just like, oh, you believe this ridiculous thing I can prove with science. 
I, I don't I don't want to do that. Right. You know, it was like, and, and not I don't need to do that. That's not to me. That's <laughs> trivial. That stuff is nonsense. And um, if I'm understanding you correctly, too, it's it's not doing it. It's not challenging for the sake of just challenging. It's challenging for spiritual growth. It's challenging to 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 get the dialogue out there and to and to exchange ideas, not challenge ideas, but exchange, exchange ideas. and challenge my own. Because if I say something, right? Yeah, if if you're firm in your beliefs, then I mean, you know. But if I say something, there's all, and then I start to like put my own idea out, and it starts to come back to me as flawed. Like that's how right. you work through it, you know. And right, exactly. I wanted, you know, and and so so yeah so so devotion is my my practice um as far as you know but as as a meditator um like i said i started doing a zen buddhist meditation and i kept with it because like zazen, zazen yeah with the soto school specifically but i also went to some some chinese teachers as well um, and you're just following the breath, and and uh, there's a really uh, wonderful passage in the uh, Upanishads, in the Chandoga Upanishad, about the breath is the ultimate meditation object because if you like see something and you use that as your meditation object, you may not actually be seeing what you think you're seeing, so it's it's right. corruptible. You may not be hearing what you think you're hearing because of the limitations of the human body. And so in the Upanishad, it says it's, you know, demons can get in there and mess with you. Uh, but the breath. God knows we don't want we that. We don't want demons. And I've already established when I was already, a kid, I was like, no demons in me. We've already, we've already gone over the exercise. I don't want to do that. I don't, and then I actually saw the exercise. I've, I've heard about there. it. It doesn't sound like, a, doesn't sound like it's like, for no, me. It apparently involves a lot of vomiting. Um, <laughs> just not, some people are into that. Having my, head, having my head spin around seems incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah, I don't want to. I have other things to see I want a to chiropractor after that for sure. It just seems distracting. You know, she was in bed forever. How long was that girl in bed? I don't know. And she's nah. getting worse and worse every day. But, uh, but, you know, so, but the breath, like you're either breathing or you're not. And if you're not breathing, you're not alive. Right. So there's that, you know, so the breath is, you know, no matter what you're doing and when you're sitting in meditation, you know, whatever comes up in your brain, blah, blah, blah. You know, you catch yourself and you go, okay, I'm going to just go back to the breath. And it's just right there. It's, there's nothing more to, you don't have to rationalize anything. You know? So learning that from Zazen and, and the Zen world was incredi- incredibly helpful. And that's still the basis because I do find that actually physically meditating does have an over, I mean, it has an overall effect on your body. You start to internalize these sorts of things on a much deeper uh, level. And then, you know, just being a curious person again, you know, and then starting to adapt uh, and, and doing yoga and, and, and learning Kriya techniques. Um, you know, there is, um, there's, a, there's a yoga uh, move called the, the bandits, which means lock. Okay. And um, this, the mula banda is your perineum, right in between your, your butt and your genitals. Right. right. And... <clears throat> This particular muscle, what's really interesting about it, is when you squeeze it, it's connected to your pelvic floor. Is that like your your PC muscles? Yep, your, that's your, exactly what like it, it is. You know, right. and there's all kinds of exercises to 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 utilize this. Right, to strengthen the pelvic floor and yeah. And, but what's what's beautiful, what's really beautiful about it, and this has really been helpful to me personally as a guy with a spine injury, is mm. when you when you squeeze it, it, it it helps you like find that exact position where your spine can just stand straight and relaxed. 
And then from there, and then so, you know, I started doing that and practicing it regularly and practicing when I sit. And, um, you, and then there, and then there are other, there are other locks that you can also do. Um, which, which again, I don't want to get into the whole uh, Kundalini and Kriya thing because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not officially a teacher, but I do practice those sorts of things. And mm -hmm. I've had, and I, through that, you do have a, a, a very direct experience of your own being and the energy inside of your body. Right. It, yeah. One, it, one of the uh, guests I just had on uh, Joanne Hawanski, she's a Kundalini yoga teacher. Okay. Yeah. So this, this is all I'm, that stuff that she's doing. It. That's not, it's real. Right. It's real. It's very, very real. Um, oh, it's the sure. same. Yeah. I, I'm curious about, I've never really dabbled. I mean, I've, I've been doing yoga for years, but I've never really dabbled into Kundalini and I'm, I'm really curious to, to get involved in it. Well, I would talk, well, I would talk with uh, that woman you're talking, because you do need. That, that's my plan. Yeah. I, I've already. You want to find someone that you can, you can trust because um, it's, it, it's basically, you know, practicing these things, it's about finding, a, a, it's a method to using your body as a vehicle for the, in the same way that like a story or a myth would be a vehicle for understanding something. You know? Right. Um, you know, because like when we feel something, you know, there's a psychological, psychological aspect and there's a physical aspect to it. Uh, Buddha right. called it two darts. So he said, when you suffer, there's the physical dart, boom, and there's the psychological dart. Psychological right. dart, you can get rid of it. Physical dart, you can't. <laughs> so right. If your body is tuned to feel stress in a situation where it should not feel stress and you feel the stress, you're going to feel the stress. Question is like, Absolutely. are you going to be able to move that energy along or are you going to get stuck in it? Right. And that's where. Yeah. How, how quickly can you process that? Yeah. And that's where Kundalini, which is the same kind of, it, it approaches the same stuff that Tai Chi does. It's Chi, Pran, it's all the, it's all another very just moving energy yeah, it's just moving energy within your body and yeah i mean the, these these sorts of practices especially when you do them daily um coupled with a with a with a proper uh meditation practice they have very results you calm down you start to see yourself in a different way um you start to you start to feel your own creative energies flowing in a different way your sexual energy right. has become very different than before you start to see everything as a much larger process that you're a part of. Yeah. Um, every, you know, you start, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just a, it's just a nice way to, it's a nice way to be. It's a lot better than getting pushed and pulled. Now you touched on a word that I wanted to talk, a specific one to talk to you about today, creativity. This is kind of one of the whole like reasons I, I wanted to do this interview with you because uh, you're, you're still actively, well, not touring at the moment because of the, Kerbal, you know, current global issue going on, mm -hmm. but uh, you're very much still active in the in the music community yep. and uh, creativity. Mm -hmm. How do you, do you how do you use your? Do, I see creativity and spirituality as hand in hand for sure. Yep. You know, like, like, do you want to elaborate on that? Like your your thoughts on that? Like, do, do you use music as a spiritual practice? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, and you, do you you for sure find that the spiritual practice helps the music? Well, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, music. 
I mean, I mean, you can talk. I mean, anyone who plays music. We'll, we'll just we'll just say art. art let's yeah, not just yeah. let's not just like pin well, it down. I'll use to music. music. I'll use say. music specifically because it kind of does well, yeah, tie into some you. of the things yeah. that I was talking about. Um, but okay. it, yeah, in a more general sense, it, it is about art. But you know, with music, uh, I mean, you talk to anyone who plays music, especially anyone who plays music, you know, well, right. regardless of what kind of music it is it's people. People don't just become musicians. They're sort of called to it. Something about their life pulls them in that direction. Yeah. Some, Something about some their life spoke to you. Put the instruments in their hands and they were able to figure out how to make noise with them, you know, all these things. Right. Uh, so a number of years ago, uh, a friend of mine, he sent me uh, a video of the, uh, these, these kids in Africa drumming on the water. They're in a river. They're drumming on the water, and there's multiple parts. It's this kind of polyrhythmic thing they're doing. And they're singing on top of it, and it sounds really cool. And I'm listening to it, and like I said, I'm a curious person, so I'm always trying to like figure out what's the, you know, what's going on here. Mm. And so I was like, well, what, 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 what are they playing? Like, how does this music work? And, um, you know, the thing about it is like if you're – if your instrument is water, that's a very volatile instrument, you know? Like if I play a piano, every time I hit the C key, it's going to sound... It's going to be the same C reliable. Unless, There's a certain reliability there, you know? With water... Yeah, push it down a flight of stairs or something, it's going to be the same every exactly. time, yeah. With the water, you hit the water and who knows where it's going. And then especially if you're splashed right. along with a whole bunch of other people, it's like... Yeah. Right. And see, I wonder, I wonder if things like, you know, the difference between, you know like fresh water and and salt water because the specific gravity changes in the water and you change the buoyancy so that's going to change everything too i mean there's so How's many the wind blowing that day exactly what, i mean there's so many factors. which way was which way was the water flowing exactly. was there was there fish underneath there you go. You know, like, yeah like, the whole thing is going to change every aspect everything so yeah so you have this very volatile instrument and i'm listening to it and and, and it's funny because i'm listening to the sound that's coming out and the sound itself is inconsistent, but like I can perceive that there's this internal rhythmic structure going on. And so, you know, I'm a, I'm I'm from the Western world, and uh, you know, in the it, when we think of music in the West, we think of everyone. Even if you can't read music, we we think of everyone having a set part that they play, you know, right? Or some or some guidelines that they play within something something that's easy to understand right. that you can write down. Right, right. Yeah, the verse, chorus, verse, verse. chorus, verse. Maybe you can you can even write out the rhythms and stuff. But again, with this water thing, I'm like, well, how do you write out a part for water that's not going to sound? <laughs> you know, how do you do that? Like, what's what's the way to do it? And it really, it, I really thought about it for a long time. And um, and then it like hit me. I was like, oh, it's like so obvious. You don't learn a part. You learn how to move your body properly. It's the same way you learn how to, you know, use a power tool. You're like, right. you know, it's like the yeah. same way you learn how to shoot a gun. I mean, you like, you like, you, it's technique. You apply the proper technique and you use your body in the right way. Right. So then, when when I realized that, it was it was this huge epiphany for me because I was like, wait a minute, that's like all music is just a body movement. Yeah. And then I remembered. This is I'm, actually here's a great story. You'll love this one. So when I was 18 years old, this was 1998. I went to go see the Sun Ra Orchestra play in New York at the Texaco Jazz Fest, and nice. the opening 
the band that played before them was, uh, I hadn't heard of this guy yet. His name was Milford Graves. And he was playing with a saxophone player named John Zorn. And Milford. I, John, I love John. Can I just say I love John Zorn? Okay, great. John Zorn, hell of a guy. So I saw John play with Milford and Milford Graves. So he's a, he's a drummer. And uh, he got down and he had a little microphone and he had these drums that were painted crazy. He had a whole bunch of gongs behind him. And he just starts kind of screaming into the microphone and then playing all this wild stuff. And then John Zorn does what you, you know, kind of wild saxophone screaming, noisy yeah. kind of stuff that, you, that he's known for. And this was kind of like all, it was obviously like very like high energy, free improvisation kind of thing. Right. And like, yeah. I'd seen that stuff a lot of times before, you know, and I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm into that stuff. I really love that music. Yeah. Um, but like, this was, this was somehow different because like this guy Milford had everybody like on the edge of their chair. You just felt, you just felt this thing going on. Right. And I was with my friend and we were just like, what, what's happening? What's going on? What's, what's this guy all about? Right. So we kind of left that show like, whoa, this Milford Graves guy, who's he? What's his deal? So my, I was from White Plains, New York. My buddy, he was from, his name's Charlie. He was from Scarsdale, New York. Okay. And one of his high school teachers happened to be friends with Milford and said, oh, do you want to meet Milford? So we, went, so we said, yeah, we want to meet Milford. So we went to Milford's house in Jamaica, Queens. And we went down. And so I'm going to... So Milford's story, I'll give you the, the truncate. So Milford is, uh, he's been around for a while. In the 1960s, he, uh, he, he was playing with a lot, with a guy named Albert Eiler, who's another, who was okay. one, of the, one of the people who really popped, brought a lot of that kind of like high energy, free jazz, screaming saxophone, big sound, kind of a legendary figure. Uh, he actually, Milford played with Albert uh, at John Coltrane's funeral, among other things. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So, you know, the, so he, Milford in the sixties is doing all this kind of music. And then, uh, then he's, then in the seventies, he decided he wanted to go back to school and become a vet tech because he was interested in medicine. And while he got a job working for a veterinarian in Manhattan, uh, the, the vet st started to let Milford borrow medical equipment to bring home because he wanted to do his own tests on the rhythms of the human body. Oh, weird. So Milford's been doing these tests in his basement since the 1970s, right? Uh, Harvard Medical School gave him a grant in 2005, I think, you know. Uh, he got awesome. a He got a tenureship at, uh, um, uh, was it Bennington College in Vermont? He's a very, very, like, interesting, charismatic guy. And without going into all the one, and everyone should look up Milford Graves. He's a, he's a national treasure, and he's still alive. And if you ever get to see him play, you should do it. He's in his 70s now, but I think he's still playing. But uh, his basic thing that he really wants to get across to everybody is a healthy human bubble. It doesn't go boom, boom. It goes bubble. It's got that little lope, that little swing, right? So, because if it goes boom, boom, that means your blood vessels are constricting and your heart has to work extra hard to pump blood to the rest right. of your body. But if you get that nice boom, bubble, you know, your body works better. And then, you know, and, and, you see all these scientific experiments where they're like, yeah, you know, drummers, you know, people's heartbeats will sync up with drummers. People start breathing together. People start coming together. There's a lot of power. That's kind of like the, uh, the boom bap of old school hip hop. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. You know, 
But this is now Milford, he's a free jazz guy. So he's like, well, you know, the tempo can speed up, it can slow down. I'm about getting inside the human body on an even even deeper level than just the Right. You know, he's like, no, I want to go deeper than that. And that's why watching him play, people get all can get all like whoop, they can get all worked up because he's right, like what is all going these on rhythms here? are actually yeah. like our 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 bodies are actually like reacting to it in a very, very real way that we may not understand on a on a conscious level, but like I was saying, our intellect is not the all of our brain and our perception, right. you know, there's these other things, aren't you know? And so, you know, so yeah, there's that, that universal mind that just that connection, that universal consciousness kind of like, it's immediately recognizable, even though you've never per se heard it. Right. You it know? is. And there's, there's all kinds of like musical, there's all kinds of little like uh, musical devices that, that really do. They are, I mean, if you, when you, I found that you can play, if you play any piece of music and you can really feel your own heartbeat in it, you're going to sound wonderful. You really will. And other people will too. And, and, uh, and, you know, for me, cause like as a musician, like I got into music, well, I found out I could play music when I was 10. I didn't know that I could play music prior to that. And then, you know, as I went along, I found out that I'm very good at figuring out how to play instruments. That's that's like that was like yeah, my you're, you're very much a very much a multi instrumentalist. Yeah, I'm a multi instrumentalist guy. I play a bunch of different instruments. I like figuring out how the machine works, what you can do with it. Yeah, I, I feel that man. That's me yeah. too. And, sure. and it's a lot of people. You just like every time I see a keyboard, I love key electric keyboards because they all do something different. You're like, what does this one yeah. do? Oh, it's got this weird yeah, yeah. auto accompaniment feature. How's that work? You know, figuring I, I love like I love like old like toys and stuff like old, you know, musical, like just toys that they would sell like Toys R Us oh, yeah. or you know, toy stores and shit like old crazy weird noisemaker shit. Just whatever I can find. Whatever you, know what you I mean? can like, find. And the toys they're making now for kids for musical theory are even more. Better than some of the shit I had that cost me a lot of money when I was like just getting started. I know, right? I know, crazy. right? So I, yeah, so I love it. You know, I like, I like working the machine and making the music. To me, it's just kind of interesting. It's like, wow, I made it work. That's so cool, you know? Yeah. The whole idea of uh, getting up in front of an audience and having people like enjoy what you're doing. I was a little dense, <laughs> like realizing that that's a good thing to aspire to, too. Uh, I was being like, nah, man, I'm going to do my own thing and see how it goes. That would, yeah, that was me for sure. Yeah. I was like, yeah, fuck them. I'm, okay. you know, I'm the one playing the music. <laughs> and, you know, as I got older and I was like, well, if I want to like do this, I got to play with people. You know, I got to, I got to do stuff that resonates with an audience. I got to find out. Yeah. If I, if I actually want to do this in a, for like for a living, yeah, but, yeah. probably going to have to make some concessions on my own ego. Right. And fortunately, I really didn't, I found that I didn't really care what kind of music I was playing. I mean, I cared if I liked it or not, but I'm, I'm an Oh, yeah. person so I, you know i've heard I, the first thing i had i had uh i mean i've had a I've, i mean i started working playing people started to pay me to play music with them when i was 16 because i was a bass yeah. player and i was i was decent and everyone needs a bass player and so absolutely yeah and that was the thing is people would say like oh man if you can play the bass everyone's gonna want to play with you and they were totally right like i started I, when I, I mean as soon as i started people were like oh shit you play bass come here you know and well, one of my best friends that's been like whenever i have a project where i'm actually with you know playing with other members has been my bass player since i was like like 13 years old and he's only a bass player for the specific fact that we needed a bass player and i was like yo man you can be in this band but you're gonna have to play bass he's been my bass player 
literally ever that's, since. Great bass player, by the way, Brandon King. Good that's guy. a beautiful story, and I love to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I got good. At it's the same thing with drummers, yeah. you know. Like, no, and it, it's like if you can do it. I mean, there's no, musician. I mean, bands need these things. What do you call a great band with a shitty drummer? Shitty band. <laughs> a shitty. Band, I don't know. It's yeah. like okay, so you're in off Florida. time. So Florida is like the land of uh, of uh, of cover of of cover bands at the beach. Oh, dude, yeah, because I'm I'm like right here on the beach too, like you know, like Pensacola Beach. Yeah. So like, if that's one of the things, that like, especially you know, me trying to do what I was trying to do the time at the time. Of, well, you could put it at really any time down here because it never fucking changes. Down here, they want to hear Jimmy Buffett covers and Brown Eyed Girl, right. and you know, you like, and that's it. Like, if you want to gig on a consistent basis, like locally, you're gonna have to suck it up and do that. Like, there's no creative outlet here. You know, it's it's basically like you are a cover band. You're playing covers. If you want to make money, that's what you got to do. So that's why I was on the road so much. Like, I, I don't want to do that. So I just I'll play other places I'll where they actually want to hear original hear something music. Else. Yeah. yeah. No, and it's funny. Like when I hear those bands too. Um, I always, you know, it's like every time I see a live band, I'll always take a listen and just see what it is. And with a lot of the, oh, yeah. a lot of those sort of, a lot of those sort of bands, a lot of times um, you'll be listening to them and you'll be like, all right, the, the singer's okay. Guitar player is okay. That bass player is not great, but you know, whatever. And then you're like, drummer's fine. <laughs> it's like, right. like, that's why they Hold have a gig, down. man. It's because they have a drummer who can play. Yeah. And, 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 and it's almost, almost every, every, every time. You know, you you need you, you need that you need that sort of sort of thing to to translate to to the people. So for me, you know, my challenge as a musician when I realized, you know, I got like I said, I started people started paying me money to play music when I was sixteen, and I just was like, well, this is way better than you know the other, yeah. you know, the other jobs that were available. Punching a clock or whatever bullshit. Yeah, and even like at that, I was in high school. I was like, I could go. I mean, I was allowed to go to bars and stuff, and. I didn't, right, yeah. I didn't touch alcohol. with a band. Yeah, I, I didn't touch alcohol. And I actually took that real seriously, too. I still do. I mean, I still don't really drink alcohol to this day. Because awesome. I was like, I was in bars as a teenager in high school. And right. I knew, I was like, well, I want to be here to play music. And that's what's most important. And if I, right. if I like, you know, if I, if I, if I, if I like do anything to like make it that I will not be welcome here and drinking right. alcohol is a as a minor in a bar is a really good way to make yourself not welcome. <laughs> Dude, let, let's be honest. Drinking alcohol when you're not a minor into the bar is a real easy way to do it. Yeah. So I sort of, <laughs> you never know what the fuck's going to fall out of your mouth after a few drinks. Like, Oh, I really shit the bed here. Yeah. But that, that was a big thing for me, man. Like I was, I had a real bad problem with alcohol for a while. And I think, I mean, I had a, let's be realistic. I had an alcohol problem before I ever started playing music professionally on any level. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I always played bands and stuff, but like actually making like really like that's what I'm doing. Like dropping everything else and being like, I'm playing music and like really focusing on that. Like I, I was just so still uncomfortable with myself at the time and like unsure of myself that I, I felt like I needed to have those couple drinks just to, to kind of, you know what I'm saying? Like grease the wheel and like to, can make me comfortable enough to get up there and actually do it. And after the first couple songs, I was fine. Mm -hmm. After the first couple of drinks, I was fine too. Right. And never, you know, at that point it, I, I couldn't stop at a couple of drinks. I, if I had a couple of drinks, I was going to have six drinks and <laughs> then I'm probably going to, 
to have words with somebody after this, you know what I'm saying? It's just not a good no, thing. No, so. I mean, it's, 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 it's for a lot of people. I just had a, yeah. I had a, I had a, I just had a slightly different introduction to it. So I just never. That's good, man. I, that's, I feel lucky. I do. It's great. Really? Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, I'm not, I, I wish I, I wish I could have approached it from that angle to begin. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, that would have been, that well, would have yeah. been but, but, but happy, I, happy I went the way I did because I wouldn't be where I am yeah. now had I not, you know, done every little thing just the way I did, mm-hmm. you know, had I not fucked up all in all the, the places I fucked up and made the right decision and all the places I made the right decision wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation with you right now. So, well, yeah, I mean, everyone's got their own, their own thing. We're all, we're all dealing with our life at our own speed. You know, that's important too, mm-hmm. man. At your own speed, you know, and everyone's different. I mean, you know, we all have different circumstances that 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 formed us and inform us, and right. so you know, we have to. Man, we're all snowflakes. Yeah, we're all snowflakes, special snowflakes. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, for me, it was hard because, like, uh, when I actually came of drinking age, at that point, I was like, "Man, I've been going to bars for a year, and they and they give me money to go there and not drink alcohol, and you're telling me you want me to right. go there and pay money to drink alcohol." Right. Yeah, that was my thing. It was like, not only were they paying me money to drink alcohol, they were paying me money to drink free alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. No, once the free yeah, once the alcohol was actually available to me, it suddenly just wasn't I don't know. I just didn't it didn't it just didn't appeal to me. See see like I said, it wasn't even so much the appeal to me. Like I never really enjoyed the feeling of being drunk. I just didn't enjoy the feeling of not being comfortable. And it really was just an internal right. issue, you know. I just wasn't comfortable in my own skin. I didn't even know who the fuck I was really. I was playing this part that I I thought I was supposed to be playing, you know, like well, I was wearing the wearing the mask, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And, well, and that's where and that's and that's why that's where that's 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 a very uh, you know spiritually uncentered perspective. Oh, I, my life was very chaotic yeah. at the time. My my mind was very chaotic, and it, it was reflected in my actions for sure. For sure, yeah. I mean, and that's that's just how it. That's just how that's just how it is. That's just, yeah, the nature of the beast, really. Mm-hmm. So what what do you what are you guys gonna do, man? You know, we got anything like any? I mean, we're all kind of hoping things open back up soon, so everybody, you know, because man, everybody's out of like as far as like any kind of anybody that pursues any kind of live entertainment, comedians, musicians, everybody's kind of sitting there going, "What fuck, man? What's gonna happen?" I know you guys are doing the Patreon thing right now, but like, any thoughts to the future as far as like? touring in the future when things open back up yeah have you already started maybe looking at booking something later in the year yeah you know what we've been we're kind of operate well we're kind of operating under the assumption that that things aren't going to change they will change but we're operating under as you and i both know the only constant is change so something's going to change and you know we, we know that um you know we can't really predict that but um you know again because we have an audience that's been following us for a while um you know we're very fortunate that they they even despite all the gigs going away and all this stuff they still want us to produce music right yeah you're still you're still valued you're still a, a valued commodity in yeah these people's and lives. we still are and to the the fact of the matter is it's like most of the people that listen to our music don't come to see us live anyway you know right so we so for us it's just been for now it's 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 the experiment to find out find new ways for us to reach out to our audience and experimenting with things like live streaming and patreon and whatnot um uh, we're you know now that i have more time we're spending more time working you know because i've been doing all the visual art for our 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 band for forever and so 
uh, we're starting to work, uh, you know, we're working out, we're, we're making videos and we're, um, that's working cool. on animations and, and, and doing all that sort of thing. Yeah. I've seen, seen some of the stuff you've been posting. That's coming me. along. And, um, it's, it's, you know, honestly for me, it's just a very, I'm feeling very inspired these days. I've been very productive and I've been coming out with a lot of stuff. Um, most of which we're not really, most of which we're, we're, we're kind of keeping on a much slower, uh, stream out to the public because we, you know, we don't know how, how, you know, how long this is all going to last. So we want to, you know, ha have stuff to, to, to get, right. you know, I think you have a lot of people who are in bands who are touring, who kind of assumed that they had a sort of a comfortable position and then it just dropped away and they didn't have anything to sort of fill yeah. up the gap. And we're like, we don't really have that problem. Uh, we were very fortunate that we had, last year we recorded, we actually recorded two albums worth of, tracking but we uh got a full album one the first volume is mixed mastered it's done and we got it done before uh the quarantine and then that's yet to be released is yet to be released and it's a do you have a title for yeah, it yeah it's a it's a jazz album of nirvana tunes it's oh, lounge trippy lounge jazz it's called lounge act. oh that's awesome and it is awesome i'm really proud of it what, what was it called, called again? lounge act awesome yeah. nice and so we have uh yeah we got a uh, that sounds amazing, man. I'm really looking forward to hearing I that. I think that you'll sounds... like it. It's very... It, oh, I'm for sure going to like it. We did it last year at the Jam Room in Columbia, South Carolina. Zach Thomas recorded it. Zach, we've done... This is our, I want to say, fourth or fifth album we've done with Zach. Um, and he, and we, he, had a, he has a drummer there in Columbia named uh, Evan Simmons. And he was like, I really want you guys to meet Evan. And he brought Evan in and Evan uh, played drums on the whole thing phenomenal drummer uh and really just yeah just was able to to give us a, a whole nother musicality and perspective that that we didn't have that just made the music rich that we gave zach a lot of license with the mixing and the effects and how he would treat it so he got to really get his hands dirty and right. so it was a it was definitely the most collaborative album we've ever made we tracked the drums i played guitar on the whole thing drums uh, vocals megan's voice and the drums all that is tracked 100 percent live and then on some of the tracks we overdubbed evan played piano and i played organ on some tracks um nice. and, it, and then you know mixed in with the sort of weird effects but otherwise we, we ended up coming out with a very like it's it, it's it's right where it's right in between accessible and like very avant-garde it's it's a really good balance i feel and, and it's also it's like it's it's also you know being able to dig into like nirvana's music like that was really well one uh we found out that he sang about heroin a lot oh my oh, god yeah. the, you know and for us that was a little it was a little disturbing but yeah, it's also very depressing. Yeah. But it's also like, that's a very telling. Yeah. It's very telling. And like, given the state of our country, it's also like obvious why this music is so resonant with so many people. Yeah. Well, yeah. Why it's still so. Yeah. Kids still like so it. It's, it's yeah, incredible yeah. to me that they still, I'm like, you, you know, still very, like, very, Nirvana. like Nirvana was a weird band. Have, like I, it's it's you know like it's, like other bands like that. I don't know. Well, I'm not going to lump them into the same category, but just the you know music that just transcends time. Like it's still relevant. It, it it still speaks to you on levels that it doesn't matter. You know what day and age it is. It doesn't matter what's going yeah. on. It's 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 relevant. It is relevant. And one thing that and and this project we really found um, it was it's relevant because um, 
because you know there is a lot of meaning behind the lyrics he was writing and his melodies and all this sort of stuff and and doing it as a lounge jazz like we didn't we didn't really i think the we didn't really do very many of the hit songs like we didn't do teen spirit we did we i think we did do hard shape box but that's not that's not on the album that got done Thank, thank you for that. Thank you for steering away from the, mostly, <laughs> the big radio. It's hit. mostly all the other tracks off the, the records. You know, right, all the B-side kind of stuff. Yeah, like, you know, Francis Farmer will have a revenge on Seattle. That's, that's, that's one of my fav- favorite Nirvana songs. Well, wait to hear our job. We do it as a straight up. Uh, ballad, I can't wait to hear it. I cannot wait to hear it. Because the thing is, the way he wrote music was, he, they're all power chords, you know? Yeah. It's all power chords. There's nothing, that's all he, he used. And he would, he had a very music, he had a very unique musical sensibility where he would come up with these really unusual but accessible Port, patterns. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, his, the, the way he, like, the timing of his riffs versus, like, his vocal lines is very strange. Like, uh, his, uh, the one that stands out in my mind as far as that aspect is concerned is uh, Very Ape. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just a very strange riff to go with the, well, it's a very strange vocal choice to go with the riff that he wrote for that. So, yeah. You know what and I mean? Like, a- the timing of it's, it's it's very very odd. It is very odd, and there's a lot of examples like that in Nirvana music, right. and, and that's what we found. And so what we did was, but you know, at the same time, he was as a person, he, you know, a lot of the screaming and the the distortion and all that, you know, part of that is stylistic, but it, another part of that is he as a person. That was how he was able to shield himself from his own insecurities. Right. Uh, that was his couple of drinks before the show. Yeah, that was his because he did. He had uh, he had imposter syndrome. Like he didn't feel he was worthy of all this stuff, and, and you know we all know how that went. But uh, so, but you know we're not we're we're not him. You know, so we can actually listen right. to his music, and without any, without having to take that emotional, horrible right. leap, we can go. Oh no, this is a pretty song, and and we'd actually like you to hear it, the melody. <laughs> you know. Um, and taking those those power chords, those little two note chords, and then just beefing up with three or four extra notes and finding ways to fit, and it, it, it suddenly, you know, the music. It's like it's not our music, but suddenly we're injecting something else into it, and it's injecting something else into us, and we're doing it as a collaboration with, you know, Megan and I. It's usually just the two of us, and to bring in Evan playing the drums and the piano and giving him the freedom to play the way he plays and you know and being able you know he's he was a good he was a good fit personality wise musicality wise he was a very good fit for us and we were able to all of us were able to just kind of stretch out and, and 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 do what we wanted to do so that when we hear the when we hear the record back it's like every single one of us was a instrumental part was a vital part of making this you know thing come into being but not a single one of us is like totally the the star of the show necessarily not necessarily i mean we all contribute you know, so megan's the singer right well, yeah, attention, I mean, but you know as the way that is kirk Cobain music um which is what we really wanted to get across we want to go these are wonderful songs and we want people to hear them in a new could you repeat that? You kind of faded out a little bit. Okay. I mean, the real star of the show is, is Kurt Cobain's music. And we wanted right. to bring all that out. But when we hear it back, there's all these weird little, you know, quirks that come with having a, you know, a spontaneous semi-improvised record and whatnot. Right. And, 
And, you know, so it's like, it's a record that you're a part of, but you're also not a part of it. <laughs> right. You yeah. Know? That's interesting. That's all awesome. these other people who really contributed things that you would never think of. Like the stuff yeah. Zach does, I would never think of doing the way Evan played. I mean, I would, I would never, I quit. I can't play like him. Like right. Originally I was going to play piano on the record cause I can play piano. And then, I was listening to Evan playing the piano and he had all of these really cool, like kind of churchy voicings that I don't know. And right, yeah. right then and there, I was like, screw it. You play piano. I want to hear you it. Do it. You do it. I don't want to. Do <laughs> I mean, you know, I played, I found Oregon. Oregon is, I, I like Oregon more. If I'm going to play is, if I'm going to play a keyboard instrument with other people, I feel like I'm a little more comfortable on an Oregon because in Oregon, you can kind of play with your fists and mess up a little right. more. <laughs> it's like playing the uh like a a distorted guitar versus uh like a clean a lot like that yeah yeah so yeah yeah, so we have you know we have an album that we're uh we're actually going to be uh starting to do do a fundraiser for pretty soon once we kind of take the temperature of the world and see how we want to go about doing that so i mean for us we're still bursting with creativity. We have lots of things we want to express. We have lots of music that we want to bring out to the world. And, and, and the whole quarantine thing isn't really stopping us at all. Um, That's awesome, man. That's good. I've found it's been like, like to, to the antithesis of stopping, it's, it's almost been like adding fuel to the fire. Like it's maybe not even just as far as subject matter, but, the the chance we've all had to kind of slow down you know we were talking about uh vipassana mm-hmm. earlier and and retreats and stuff it's kind of like we've almost you know for people that are especially still on some sort of, sort of lockdown it's almost like a forced retreat you know yeah you got to figure it out and the people who who are just frustrated they they're, they're going to have it's just going to compound and become more and more difficult you know, that's where uh, meditation comes in. And, you know, like we were talking about earlier, you, you know, meditation can either transport you somewhere else, but like the real intended purpose of is, you know, especially like mindfulness meditation is to sit with it, you know, to, to really just be in the feeling, the emotion, whatever you have going on at the moment right now, this is what we've got going on. So you can either be frustrated with it and try to fight it. Like, I don't know about you, but any like psychedelic experiences I've had, this just reminded me of that. It's like, they're always going to be worse if you try to fight it. You know what I'm saying? If you just kind of go with it and just, just accept things for what they are. Mm-hmm. And then the, that's been my approach to this whole situation anyway. But yeah. do you guys have any, do you guys have a release date for that? No, yet? we don't. We don't. Like I said, we're probably going to, we're probably going to be uh, starting a, starting that up in the next month. Nice. Uh, to, uh, to get that out there and, and we have well our, our you can you can preview it on patreon <laughs> our patreon people awesome. have heard it and they not all and that was, a, of, that was a megan jean megan jean yeah awesome well, I mean, I'll, I'll definitely have to still uh, steer some people in your direction yeah. for sure yeah. I, i'm looking really forward to hearing that oh man it sounds awesome yeah well you know, super you know cool. okay, i'll send you a little something for you to listen to awesome excellent Sweet man. Well, it's been really cool talking to you, man. I don't, we haven't actually had a chance to sit down and kind of bat some ideas around. This has been amazing. Yeah, we'll have to do this again sometime for sure. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thanks for asking me to do this. Absolutely. Thanks, Bern. Well, man, we will catch up with you later. Have a good one, Take bud. Care. Later. Thanks again to Bern for doing this. And if you want to check out more of his work and what he's done with Megan Jean and the KFB, they can be found on Facebook at Megan Jean and the KFB. 
and on Patreon. Just look up Megan Jean. If you like the show, be sure to rate and review. And if you want to get in touch with us, it's Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. Namaste.